Cruise Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Let's get to it here. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. But tonight, uh, no experts per se. Isn't that right, gentlemen? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> no, I don't. The per se, you don't even need to add. There's just no experts. <laughs> none, of us, none of us claiming to be experts. This is our 2017 recap. So, we will be indirectly channeling many experts who we spoke with this year. Dr. Stuart Brigham is in bed with the man flu, which you will hear a lot about on a future episode that we recorded uh, with Dr. Paul Sachs. But uh, right now, I wanted to introduce our correspondent, Christopher Chu, Dr. Christopher Chu. He's an assistant professor of clinical medicine at a not-to-be-named university in the state of Ohio. Isn't that right, Chris? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. It's super hard to figure that one out. Okay, so we, got a, we have a huge agenda, but why don't you tell the audience, uh, what, what's your one-liner? All right, so my one-liner, I'm a 36-year-old father of soon-to-be three boys, so that's coming February. Um, I practice internal medicine and pediatrics here at... Uh, I guess we call it cash like state. I love yep. to teach students and residents. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, you're with having the three boys, you're you're getting close to my world of pain. You gotta you have to add a fourth one. Uh <laughs> it's been a difficult one, so maybe maybe not. <laughs> Paul, I don't want to feel you to feel left out. Any cats on the way? No, no. And I, I feel just great about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Chris, uh, what you're going to be kind of uh, going through the agenda tonight. So what's what's on the agenda here? All right. Well, today is a very special episode. So Matt and Paul here, and as, as well as me, we're, we're going to share some of our favorite episodes and clinical pearls from the year. Um, also, we sent out a, um, a ballot uh, for the last uh, month, uh, week and a half, and uh, a lot of Curbsider listeners were able to vote on their favorite episodes and uh, gave us some of their um, burning questions. So hopefully we'll have a fun time today. Um, it'll sort of be um, off the cuff, I guess, and uh, it'll be fun. Yeah, without, so, without Stuart, there will probably be a lot less editing for me to do. <laughs> Maybe the same amount of awkwardness, though. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's what we're known for, right, Paul? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why don't we, why don't we start with some uh, picks of the week? Uh, Chris, we always give pick the first pick of the week to the new guy. Oh, is that right? Okay. So um, my pick of the week actually is a, a podcast, medical podcast, because I'm sure most of our listeners love medical podcasts, um, is the Dentastic Mr. Fox and Howard Show. So one of my uh, favorite hobbies is listening to toxicology. So uh, this is like a, a really great podcast. Um, um, Dan Rusniak and, um, from Indiana University and Howard Geller, um, they, they basically is a toxicology podcast that ranges on a whole bunch of different things, but um, a couple months ago, they had this great episode on um, on, on poisoning and espionage and all sorts of things like that, scorpion bites. But uh, this week was really great because they had an uh, addiction episode and they had an addiction psychologist on. Um, so it was mind-blowing. Lots of talking about um, 
um, analogies of taming the monster and Google Maps and all sorts of weird things like that. So it's a, I highly encourage that people listen to the show. They have um, uh, a radio voice announcer that announces every show, and then they have like fake ads to go throughout that are medical based and just hilarious. So oh, why do you think of the it. fake ads thing? I like that. <laughs> yeah. So you know, not bad. But since we don't have any sponsors yet, I don't think. Yeah. Right? No, no sponsors. Paul, uh, did you have a pick of the week? Sure, I sure do, Matt. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to recommend, actually, a, a series of video essays. And it's not as pretentious as it sounds, but it's this, <laughs> it's this series called Every Frame a Painting uh, oh. by this guy, Tony Joe and Taylor Ramos. And basically, it's uh, this Tony Joe guy is, um, is an, a film editor, and he's, he's put together these essays that looks at a bunch of different aspects of the craft of actual filmmaking. So the, the last one they put together before the thing kind of went defunct was just why all modern movie soundtracks sound like garbage. So like their, <laughs> their thesis statement was, if you think about it, like you could sing the theme song to Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars or um, any number, I could, I could go on and on, and you could probably sing those theme songs, but I would challenge you to sing the theme song from any Marvel movie that's come out in the past five years. And you right. can't do it. And the reasons behind that are really compelling because they use these temp scores that they then copy from each other. And then it's just the whole process. It's a really fascinating look at something that I think people don't think much about. And then there's another essay about uh, the movie Snowpiercer comparing camera left to camera right and how it's actually a metaphor for left being everything that anchors humanity and right being the fort of the train. If you follow the movie and that's always the decisions always follow the same frame of reference is always kind of there with camera left and camera right. So it's just a really close examination of things that we take for granted. And it's, it's a fascinating series if you like movies. So every frame of painting, you can find it on Vimeo, you can find it on YouTube. It's worth a watch if you like movies. All right. I'm going to move us into picks of the year because I didn't really have a pick of the week, but this is a, this is my pick of the year for, for an article. And this was, so there, it's kind of two articles. One's an article, one's an abstract, but this, the first article was journal of hospital medicine from February, 2017. And this was an article looking at patients exposed to vancomycin and piptazo versus vancomycin alone or piptazo alone. And showing that in the, in that group, in those three cohorts, the overall incidence of acute kidney injury by the rifle criteria was 14%, but it was 21% in the patients on vanc, vancomycin and piptazo. So, you know, to me, I'm like, okay, so the patients on vanc, vanc piptazo, well, yeah, they're probably sicker, and they did have more hypotension in that in that group versus people on monotherapy with vanc or monotherapy with piptazo. So I wasn't that impressed by that study. But when I came to this, uh, my, when I switched jobs recently, they, the, this new institution was very like, don't use Vank and Piptazo. So I started looking into, is there anything really to this? And there's an abstract, which I haven't yet been able to get access to the full thing, but this abstract is, seems very alarming to me. And this is going to be in critical care medicine in January, 2018. It's a systemat systematic review and meta-analysis. And most of the patients were not critically ill. And they looked at patients, they, they had a similar overall uh, incidence of acute kidney injury, and it, it was around 13%. But they looked at patients on Vank and Piptazo, and they compared them to patients on Vank and Cefepim, or Vank and Acarbapenem, or just Vanco, or just Piptazo. And the, peop the people on Vank and Piptazo even were 2.68 times more likely to have acute kidney injury than people on Vank and Cefepime or Vank and Acarbapenem. 
And of course, they were also more likely if they were on monotherapy with Vanco or Piptazo. So to me, that is just like very alarming that we should not be just throwing every hospitalized patients on Vank and Piptazo because people getting Vank and a carbapenem, you know, they, to me, if, if there's nothing to this Vank Piptazo thing, those patients are just as sick. So they should also have high rates of kidney injury, but they didn't. So there's, I think there might be something there. And there, there are some believers at my institution right now. I'm, I'm not sure, Paul or Chris, uh, what you're seeing at your institution. Oh, I, I completely agree. Um, I think I, I think we talked uh, offline before. Uh, Paul Sachs actually had a pretty recent uh, post on the same thing as well. I, I definitely have seen an uptick in my institution of using daptomycin in some of these patients that were worried. So, um, dapto away. Yeah, yeah. I'm not seeing any major institutional changes. I mean, it's we talked about this a little bit with with Dr. Sachs, and it's it's more. I think I'm offended just because it's a boring combination. Like I feel like we just knee jerk it without <laughs> having any kind of clinical suspicion for anything. Like sick patient, bank piptazo. Like, and it's right. I, I hopefully this will actually spur on a little bit more critical thinking about what we're actually treating. So I, I, yeah. in addition to saving some kidneys, so right. I'm on board, but just so I'm clear, your pick for the entire year is an abstract. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did give an article there as well. It, it wasn't, True. it wasn't as impressive to me, but that, that concept uh, has been very practice changing for me. And I would, I would like to pass that on to the audience uh, at least to be keyed into that. So thanks for belittling my belittling my pick of the year, Paul. Uh, what's uh, yours? Getting warmed up. What's yours? I'm, I can't wait to shoot yours down. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think you will. And I, I maybe I misunderstood the pick of the year. I thought we were supposed to pick a former pick and something that we really felt strongly about. So I, I was trying to think of any of the former picks of the week that really got me just kind of energized and excited, and that I just couldn't stop thinking about after they were recommended. Dark so my power? pick. So my, my pick of the year is the $10 jump rope available from Amazon from Survival and Cross. So it is, it's a piece of rope between two sticks, and you just jump over the rope, and it's, you can get it for 10 bucks. So pick of the year, um, the Survival uh, and Cross jump rope. And Paul, you're, you're right. I, I can't shoot that down because it was, it was my wonderful pick that became your pick of the year. Well, Chris, did you have a more helpful pick of the year? Well, I, I guess I'm the more boring one. Um, but I, my pick is, um, probably the series on, uh, from another medical podcast I listened to called I am reasoning. It's from, uh, these guys from down under these internists, uh, Art Nahill and Nick, uh, Skizit, and I'm probably butchering his name. Um, uh, but they, they have this great podcast on, uh, just clinical reasoning and faults and things like that. But they recently had a, a two part series on, on called turning the wheel about uh, the connections between art artistic thinking, creativity, and how it improves clinical reasoning and diagnosis. I think recently I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, as, as a, one of the, the newer um, correspondents, you know, we've had, we have some great artistic correspondents that have been working with us recently. And um, like Kate, who has been uh, called out by, by Stuart before about her great paintings and of uh, Joe Topf and, you know, the Soul Whisperer and some other things that she's been putting on Twitter really made me thinking about this. So That's great. Chris, what is next on the agenda? Now it's time to do our top five. So, you know, I, you know, I'm not only a correspondent, but I'm also a listener. So I definitely have my own favorite episodes. But, you know, like I said, we had voting ballots over the last like week or so. We sent it out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, recently on the newsletter. And we actually got quite a few responses. So uh, can you believe you guys did nearly 50 episodes in the last year? So you guys have really done, done a lot. And, you know, we had... <laughs> 
lots of guests from uh, Kevin MD, Kevin Kevin Poe, Scott Weingart from EM Crit, as well as like when you guys went to Ace, all the endocrinology guys, um, the ACP highlights. You know, we've had pulmonologists, pharmacists, women's health experts. You know, and of course the Salt Whisperer himself, and so um, a lot of them have been super, super popular. Um, so it was was really, really difficult. We actually, even after we, I sort of closed off voting, we still had lots of votes. So, um, um, so I guess we'll just go down to um, the number five top pick. So it was number sixty five with Scott Weingart. So if you guys remember, um, Shreya uh, joined you on this podcast with Scott. You guys talked about heuristics, um, avoiding anchoring bias. You know, talking about being the devil in the gaps as as well as why the elderly always get admitted. And then you guys talked about, you know, building relationships with the ED and, you know, a lot of Scott's pet peeves as well. So um, it was I think it was probably one of our more popular episodes. And um, I think um, some of our ED colleagues were able to listen to that as well. Yeah, the thing the funny thing about that episode, Scott, Scott and I had talked. Uh, I had reached out to him just by email and and we talked on the phone and he and he he wanted to come on the show and i i wasn't we didn't really have like a plan what we were going to talk about but he just i mean he's such a professional he just came with like all these great points that i thought were definitely practice changing for me and in or or at least mindset changing for me in the way that i interact with the er so i think that his point to most of the time you shouldn't have a conversation with the ER doctor before you see the patient uh, because of anchoring bias. And I, I believe Paul heavily supported that point. Um, that that you was know, really big for me. It's funny. Yeah, that was the one I, I had actually written down to as my favorite moment of that. I, I don't know. I'm still not sure I agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think it makes for an interesting conversation. You know, there are people who study transitions of care who probably heard that point and lost their mind. <laughs> you know, and they think, you know, there are these standardized handoff procedures and people look at this and there are systems in place. But I it was funny to me that we both came down on the same point that I'm going to be doing the homework anyway. And I feel like at some level right. we just have to trust our ER colleagues to be admitting the right patients and then just take it from there and do our jobs. And I I thought it was funny, that's kind of where we met. Um so it was it was I like that we were sort of challenged to think about that kind of communication, though I still don't know that I can 100% buy in that we just don't have to talk to them at all. No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think that would be too extreme of an interpretation of, of what he was saying. And what, so, I mean, usually they're, they're giving me somewhat of a, they have to call me at my current institution. So I'll be answering the phone and I just ask them name and room number. They'll give me like a, a brief story. But I think the big point he was making is the more you press that person on the phone, the more they're going to just make stuff up. And, and you just like, so I just try to get down within 15 minutes, sometimes within a half hour to see the patient. And if anything is like really wrong from my glance at their, their labs, their vitals, or, or just c- kind of going to eyeball the patient, then that's going to be a bigger conversation with them. Like, Hey, I don't think this person is right. Is this is the right level of care or this person can go home, something like that. Right. But I think we're all in agreement at, at no point should there ever be urine lights ordered in the ER. Like that <laughs> yes. just like, that should just, should just not be happening. Like we get yeah. irritated. Like, why didn't you check this? Like if it's right, if we're at that point, let medicine do his medicine thing. I mean, I, right. so I, I think we're in agreement there. Yeah. Uh, one one other thing from that, we we got some emails after the fact asking where does this devil of the gaps come from and the the two percent miss rate. And Scott had sent me an article 
it, it was kind of from the pulmonary embolism literature is, is a decent place to start where they kind of look at, you know, 2% is an acceptable, 2% or less risk of pulmonary embolism is an acceptable risk. Uh, and, and so that that's where they came from. And we can put the link to that article. It's in the original show notes, but we'll put it into these show notes as well. But uh, I know sometimes they use a less than 1% cutoff, like I believe the heart pathway for ACS, if it's a less than 1% risk, then th- that's acceptable to send those patients home. Um, of course, it's case by case and clinical judgment, but that was another wow. that was another thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think the way that he explained, like, listen, patients with a risk between 2 to 10%, yeah, chance at 90% of the time, nothing bad's happening there, but that is a, a big risky situation and, and the ER just can't send them home. So, and, and most patients in their eighties, they're going to fall in that two to 10%, like 100%. Th- something yeah, bad absolutely. could happen to them at all times. So, you know, I, I have some, some colleagues, uh, for my whole career that I will hear just, and at some points I've been like this, where you, you're arguing with the ER, why are they doing this to me? Blah, blah, blah. But you just got to realize like, they, they, they've got to drive that post-test probability of serious disease low enough. And if they can't do it, that patient gets admitted. Oh, so I was actually wondering, so this illustration that Scott did for you guys, did he do it after the episode? Or was he drawing that while you guys were talking? He sent that to me like two weeks before and I sent him an email back. I'm like, Scott, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I have no idea what this is. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, you shouldn't because it only exists in my head. He's like, we'll talk about it on the show. <laughs> I love it. Um, let's see. I don't have anything else to add on that. Um, I know that, um, yeah. So why don't we move on? I don't on. have anything else. Why don't we move on to the next episode? All right. So our more our fourth most popular episode was number 37. It was on lipids, PCSK9 inhibitors, as well as azetamibe. So if you remember in this episode, Dr. Paul, uh, is it Gellinger? Gellinger. Uh, Jollinger gave us. Tons <laughs> You're asking of- Wado how to pronounce the name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys talked about lipid pearls as well as you know some of the basic definitions of dyslipidemia. You know, identifying familial hypercholesteremia. I think um, Stewart actually brought in one of his own cases, if I remember correctly, about LP little a, ApoB. You know, basics of screening and you know some of the risk calculators. Right. Did you guys have any favorite parts from that episode? Yeah, the the part I, I felt almost guilty because we I don't think we let him talk enough about it was sort of the new component of the ACE guidelines that's markedly different, where they actually have this extreme risk uh, targets of patients with known ASCVD or um, and, and or diabetes and number of comorbidities. They they have a, a list of patients that would qualify in this extreme risk, and there's actually a treatment target of an LDL cholesterol less than fifty five, which was new and and based on hard evidence. And I think one of the things. I like about the new ACE guidelines is, is go, this return to treat to target. You know, initially I liked the ACC AHA lipid guidelines because it was so binary, like yes, no, and then you didn't have to worry about it. But really, the more I thought about it, the least satisfying it was. And then also, there is now better evidence for actual target numbers. Uh, and I do think that eventually we're going to reach some kind of consensus um, in general and actually probably return to treatment to target. So I feel like AAC guidelines are actually a little bit ahead of the curve with that. And I think probably my suspicion is we're going to revisit these guidelines later. Um, and and go back to treating towards a number to help with shared decision making, but also because there's hard evidence behind it now too. Right. So, so Paul, Paul, are you are you actually which, which guidelines are you using right now in your clinical practice? I and so that's a great question. And the fact of the matter is, is that I use a, a gross hodgepodge of almost all guidelines for all things. So I, I do use a combination <laughs> of the ACE and the ACCAHA guidelines because I, I think there's some good to both. The ACE is a little bit 
more granular and a little bit more high level than I think I'm capable of being. So I, I t- tend to default to the ACC AHA, but I do like the idea of treatment targets because I think it's it's easier to have a conversation with the patient. What should my cholesterol be? Well, I will tell you. It should be <laughs> this number or less. I think it's just more satisfying and you'll get more buy-in if you have them, if you give them a goal to achieve than say, don't worry about it as long as you're taking the medication. I think that if you, and if you look into the, the ACC AHA guidelines, when they're talking about high intensity statins, they do, they do expect 50% or greater reduction in LDL and then moderate intensity, 30 to 50%, low intensity, less than 30%. And when you, when you put someone on a statin, I, I just, I would tell the residents in clinic, like did, how much did that person's LDL drop from whatever their maximum was once you put them on that statin? Because you want to make sure that you are getting like that, that drop in LDL and the, the treatment goals, the treatment goals of course matter as well. And I, I agree with what you're saying, Paul, that now we know that this LDL lower is better essentially. Uh, I, I know that there's some people are worried about the PCSK9. They were driving the LDL down into the 20s and 30s, and there's there's this these rumors about neurocognitive side effects. But from my reading, those have not yet been well substantiated. So I, I think that we can drive it as low as we can. Dr. Jellinger made the point that azetamibe, which is branded as Zetia, will give you an extra 18% on top of uh, on top of a statin. And that was that was from the Improve It trial where they showed that that can lower in patients who already had known cardiovascular disease. If they lowered it further, that would still help. And I think those patients were down LDLs down into the 50s versus the um, four-year trial with the PCSK9. They lowered them all the way down into like the 20s and 30s range. So yeah, and their cells didn't fall apart, and they were fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and I it's, and maybe I had a different reading of the ACC AHA guidelines where I, you know I, it's I the expected lowering I read as more as a way to gauge adherence, mm-hmm. and I, I also think in terms of having a number is probably help, more helpful for the lifestyle changes. So I mean, if you if the cholesterol decreases the number you would expect, congratulations, thank you for taking the pill. But I, I think it's still not the better argument for you know exercise and a diet low in saturated fat and, and that, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It, and, are, are it, sorry. I was going to I was going to bring up an adjacent topic so Chris if you had a, a comment on that go ahead. Oh I just wondering whether any of you guys have actually tried getting a, a PCSK9 inhibitor approved for anyone yet. I have not. No, I have a patient in mind and then he stopped seeing me so he must have read my mind but um <laughs> yeah so not yet. I know <laughs> I'm sure Stuart's going to be bummed that he wasn't here. I I know Stuart had has tried for several patients. And, <laughs> He's got like 14 on him, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I'm sure Stuart has the the national record for patients on PCSK9 <laughs> inhibitors, or at least applications for them. The uh, An adjacent topic, uh, two topics that I just wanted to quickly highlight just because I think it's it was newer for me this year to learn about this, and I think f- probably for a lot of the audience too, was CAC scoring, which... Uh, with a in the ACE guidelines for lipids, they recommended one. They didn't even recommend using the ASCVD risk calculator from the ACC AHA. They recommended MESA and a couple other calculators. And the MESA calculator, it it it, it takes into account the coronary artery calcium coronary artery calcium score or the CAC score. And for patients who are maybe you think this patient's high risk but they're not convinced by their ASCVD risk score or their ASCVD risk score is borderline, 
for select patients, it's got to be shared decision making because you're you're taking a look in their chest with an X or a CT. But I think that that can be something where you can calculate a MESA score and really get a better sense of their individualized risk because the ASCVD risk is just a pooled risk of like you know population estimates, but when you actually get a CAC score, you're looking inside that patient and whether or not they have calcium there. Um, so I thought that was that was important. And then our other episode we did with uh, the Society for Cardiovascular CT was on CCTA. And that is really a coronary CT angiogram. That's a test for symptomatic patients. And it's been shown in studies that it leads to more more invasive angiography uh, the outcomes aren't really different uh, from my reading versus the functional testing. But I think for patients who have had like a functional stress test that's equivocal and maybe for whatever reason you don't want to take them to cath, I think this that's one instance where you might think about going to that test. But right now in my practice, there it's not available through our ER and it, it's it's just not being used much where I'm currently working. So actually, I have two things to add to those. So uh, with, with the CAC scoring, actually, I recently ordered some CACs on a, on a patient, and she was exactly where um, where you said uh, where, where you explained. So she, you know, you know, she was fairly young, middle aged, but because she's female, when I put her in the ACV score, her her risk is like below seven seven and a half percent. So she wasn't at risk for uh, well, at least according to that, needing to be on a statin. But she had she you know she had a strong family history like brothers and fathers and and you know all these other people in her family who had like early cardiovascular disease and of course as we all know the ACV risk doesn't calculate or take into account family risk so you know and we're like no let's just go ahead and just do a CAC score and at at my institution it's a hundred dollars out of pocket and that's it and she was like I'm more than willing to pay for that to look at it and um Strangely enough, her CAC score came back zero. So I was That's like, great. "Oh, fantastic!" So <laughs> it really, it actually really helped, I, and it helped uh, reassure her a lot too. So, um, and then about the um, the coronary CTs yeah. that you guys were talking about. So um, I, I don't currently have it at my institution, but my institution that I came from before um, that was one of the newer things, like you were saying in the in the ERs. I think it's a great sort of, you know, I I consider them almost like. Uh, equ- equitable to, you know, a stress test, like you're saying, sort of a functional test versus an anatomical test. So for, you know, for, I'm sure it's a bigger boon for our uh, EM colleagues who are like, well, I think I, you know, they look, their troponins are okay, and, but, you know, you might have coronary disease. We just need to sort of risk stratify you. We can throw you in the CT machine instead of keeping you overnight and getting a stress in the morning. I think that's probably where the, the bigger boon is right now, I think, right. in the ER literature. So, and actually, for um, the, so some of that stuff, um, I think on EM Crit's site, uh, Rory Spiegel, who goes by EM Nerd, he has some really great write-ups on that. So I can um, provide those in the show notes for people to take a look at, too. Great. Paul, anything to add before we move on? Nope. Okay. <laughs> All right. So down to number three, and it's number 71 on asthma. So this is actually a pretty recent episode, and correspondent Sirius Askin did uh, help lead this talk with uh, Dr. Denitza Blagov, and uh, you guys sort of simplified the approach and the diagnosis, talked a little about spirometry, patient counseling, choices of agent, and really that stepwise therapy, and even talked a little bit about de-escalation and uh, a little myth-busting. So um, 
Do you guys have any favorite parts of that episode? I thought there was a lot of really good bread and butter stuff. I like that episode a lot. Like, I don't think there was one specific point that jumped out that was earth shattering, but it just reinforced a lot of the, the habits that I should have and probably don't. So you mentioned the stepwise therapy. I feel like it's always, it's always relevant. I feel like we forget about that. My residents just want to pull the trigger on Advair every time, always. And it's, it's worth remembering <laughs> that there are inhaled corticosteroids and actually thinking about patient symptoms. Um, the, the bit about trigger avoidance I thought was really useful. Um, it's something that I don't I don't do as good a job as I should in terms of counseling my patients. Uh, it was a nice reminder for that. And then I believe she brought up a really practical point about just keeping your eyeball on the formulary because the insurance companies are constantly changing what combination medications they actually approve. And with that, you change the way that those medications are delivered sometimes as well. So you may actually have to go back and reteach inhaler technique uh, or device technique if you change um, uh, some of your controller medications. So I, th- I just thought it was a lot of really super useful, really practical um, points and uh, just a nice general review in general. So there was nothing that jumped out, but I I just enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah. And she's going to be coming back for a future episode on COPD, which I imagine will be also filled with tons of practical wisdom. I, I think that the, the big take home points for me, well, number one, I realized I didn't understand spirometry in asthma very well, that it should be stone cold normal in between exacerbations. Right. <laughs> uh, I uh, fully, that was just like a big no- blind spot in my medical knowledge. But uh, so I thought that was helpful that if it's an abnormal test, then either they're in the middle of an exacerbation or they're not well controlled or it's something else altogether. And uh, the other thing was, you know, the stepwise therapy, well, if if a patient is not feeling well, who cares about steps? Just get them feeling well, and then you can always de-escalate. I thought that was a great point. And then the last point, I'll the last thing I wanted to point to was the story about the patient who died because she thought she could only use the albuterol twice every four hours. And then mm. uh, Denitza was saying, "Well, we give continuous albuterol when they come to the ER if they need it, so they can use their albuterol as much as they need to." Right, and if they're not getting better, then they have to come to the emergency department. So, we we link to the asthma action plans uh, from uh, Intermountain Healthcare in our show notes, which uh, they the one that I have linked in the show notes. Uh, it can work for patients either with a target of peak flow or just based on symptoms. Chris, anything from that one that you wanted to highlight? So you know. I'm, I love evidence-based stuff and all sorts of new, 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 uh, studies and stuff. And, uh, my favorite thing was you guys talking about this, just the zithromycin, because I know that's sort of a big thing that we've been sort of talking about is zithromycin useful in asthmatics or COPD. And so I'm sure this is going to come back up several times. So that was my, that was one of the parts that I enjoyed of the episode. And so what you're referring to was, was that azithromycin, doesn't work to prevent, uh, well, what was the, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, what was the gist of that? Like, cause there was, it worked in one instance, but not another. Do you remember? Yeah. So you, you guys said it was basically useful in a patient with frequent exacerbations, but not useful as empiric therapy for acute exacerbations. So yes. I thought that was sort of interesting. Right. So it's not like, uh, a, right. It's not like analogous to a COPD exacerbation where, you know, if they meet criteria, you can give an antibiotic along with your normal therapy. It's, it doesn't work in that sense. But if you have your chronic uncontrolled asthma, despite other stuff, you can add azithro. And, uh, I, I mean, generally as a primary care, uh, maybe if you're in rural practice, that might be something that you're doing. I think in like, if you're in a big city, probably you're going to have pulmonary involved before you pull the trigger on chronic azithro. At least that would be me. I'm, I'm too much of a wimp to do that, but 
It's Zithro. I, I I realize it's generic now, but I feel like it must have the greatest marketing team on the planet. Like it just is a medication. Like because I remember, I mean, even part of that or cut that part out. The the place where I worked was actually part of the study where that advocated for azithromycin to prevent COPD exacerbations. And we were handing out like candy and that was like, whoops, a daisy. Now everyone's got arrhythmias. We should probably back <laughs> off of that. And now it's the same with, with asthma. We should probably just give it to all asthmatics or maybe not all asthmatics, but some of them. But I just feel like someone out there is just, there's some azithromycin impresario who just is talking us into using it. Like, I feel like it's just a medication just in search of any diagnosis. Oh, oh, I completely agree. I mean, you go back to like your, your center episodes, like, you know, it seems like with all my other colleagues who aren't, at least the colleagues I know who aren't as evidence-based, you know, or when I remember going through med school, it's like, oh, sinusitis, everyone gets azithromycin, and that's totally not even evidence-based, but everyone seems to be doing it, so. And pleiotropic effects and so forth and so on. It's, it's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For interest of time, we should move on. We have the top two coming up. All right. So next, the second most popular episode was number 49 on Vertigo. Um, so I'm pretty sure Sirius uh, stuffed the ballot on this one because Cyrus. this is another one. <laughs> Cyrus, I'm sorry. Uh, he he. Uh, this is another episode that he helped produce. Um, so you guys talked to David Newman Toker uh, about differentiating stroke from other causes of dizziness, vertigo, um, approaching the different diagnosis uh, in dizziness and vertigo, as well as how to perform the Dix-Hall-Pike, Epley Maneuver, and the Hintz exam, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I've actually gone back to this episode multiple times. I literally... I ha- I see a patient on my on my uh, on my schedule for dizziness. I'll literally pull up the show notes and like, all right, how do I do the Hintz exam again? Yeah. So, <laughs> Doctor Newman Toker shared he he had a web he has a website that's linked. I think it's called Novel, and it's uh, a bunch of videos uh, of him uh, doing all these maneuvers that we talked about on the show. And yeah, this was like. I was most excited about this episode because this is a topic that I had been terrified of for years. I had no good. Uh, kind of algorithmic approach to it in my in my head, and and this just like totally opened. The, I, I the big thing was he's. I like how he just told us like, don't bother asking a million questions about the history. Just ask them timing. Like, how long does it last? Because if it's like seconds to minutes, that's episodic. If it's you know twelve to twenty four hours or more, then that's the acute vestibular syndrome. And if it's longer than a month, that's chronic vestibular syndrome. And you know the differential diagnosis is totally different. And for a patient with acute vestibular syndrome, if they're dizzy for more than twelve hours, and and di- and and I should point out that the dizzy vertigo. Uh, you know, pre-syncope, all that. He just kind of says, just lump that in. It does. Patients don't know how to describe it. It's and you'll ask them a million ways, which I had been doing uh, for years now and have since stopped doing. But uh, yeah, so w- it, anyone with acute vestibular syndrome, they're having constant dizziness. If you move their head, they're going to feel terrible. Uh, big movements, anyway. So don't do the Dix Hall Pike on them. You do the Hints exam, and and for me, that was just the greatest. So. Paul, have you have you seen any patients with uh, acute vestibular syndrome since we did that episode? No, I, well, happily no, because uh, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified of it too. But I feel a little bit more comfortable with it since we've done that episode. And I, I, I again wrote down the same point you did. And I suspect that's the point that most people found most helpful is the the big categories and how to broadly think about it. He did. He made a real practical point, if I'm remembering correctly, um, and just edited all this out if I'm wrong about when you're doing Dixol. Well, actually, when you're doing candle three positioning about keeping the head below the level of the body the entire time. Like, I feel like that's just a very 
easy thing to remember that I just wasn't doing and sort of jerking the patient's head all over the place, which is not helpful. And since I've been doing it properly, I've actually um, had some success with it. So, yeah. but Right. And then the hints exam I've been obsessed with um, even before that episode. So it's nice to hear it kind of validated, too, and actually I talked about it a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, and f- so just to recap the, uh, for episodic vertigo, which is the one that's like seconds to minutes, your main differential is BPPV or, uh, vestibular migraine or Meniere's disease. And then if that's, that's, if it's a, uh, yeah, that's, that's your main differential. If it's a spontaneous episodic vertigo and it lasts a couple hours and there's no obvious trigger, then you do have to think about TIA. So it's not, you know, it's not as helpful there. You, you can't necessarily, uh, that workup's not as easy. And then if it's, but if they have this constant vertigo or dizziness and they're still having it when you're seeing them and it's been 12 hours or 24 hours, then it's really usually just two things. It's either vestibular neuritis, which is also called labyrinthitis if there's um, hearing loss associated, or it's a, or it's a stroke. So in those patients, you do your HINTS exam, and, and uh, I mean, that's the most helpful. And the chronic patients, generally, they could have anxiety or they could have, uh, you know, some, some of these patients, they just like, they get anxious about it and yeah, they, they have an anxiety component to it is how we put it Not very nicely, more artfully than I'm putting it right now. And then he said, or, <laughs> or they had a vestibular neuritis that, you know, just wasn't properly treated and it's kind of been a, it's a protracted course at this point. Nice recap, buddy. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> he also gave us license to use three days of meclizine or a benzodiazepines if someone has vestibular neuritis. After that, you want to get them up and moving early. Kind of reminds me of like back pain where it's like, you know, movement as tolerated. And I, that's all I have to say about that, which was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say I can't. I can't uh, say enough that these videos are fantastic. I mean, so actually, I just, I literally had an octogenarian come to my clinic this uh, very recently, and she had had BPPV before, and she had been taught how to do, um, how to do the, uh, the Apley maneuvers, and her, her, uh, her, uh, her daughter was helping her do them because she, she recently had a repeat exacerbation, like, and so they were doing them, and they're like, oh, I just wasn't doing anything, and when I, when I brought them back, I was talking to them and I had her describe to me how they were doing and they were doing completely wrong. <laughs> so I literally, I took out the videos and I, I showed them the video because, you know, they were doing the Epley just at the beginning of the video. So I think the videos are like six or seven minutes long, yeah. but he does the Epley right at the beginning and they're like, oh, that's how you did it. And then we did them together in clinic and we resolved her symptoms. It was, it was like magic. So yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't say, you know, enough about these videos. They're great. Right. Chris, uh, what is our top episode of our top requested episode? All right, drum roll, please. And I'm sure Stuart would have done something for that. I'm <laughs> sure. Um, so basically, I, I did a cop out when I was tallying all the totals, and basically, I said the number one episode was basically every Salt Whisper episode that we have because you know if we were just going to do our top episodes, like our top five, they would have been all of his. So um, we had a bunch of episodes. Um, so he did number 30. Uh, so this is Joel top with our, um, uh, our salt whisperer, our chief of 
nephrology. Um, number 31 was diuretics and resistant hypertension. Number 48 was on hyponatremia, a super popular one. And then uh, number 67 and 69 were sort of our split uh, CKD pearls and management. And so um, I don't know if there was a little bit of selection bias because we put everything out on uh, social media and, and we know that uh, he's got quite a social media presence. Um, but I agree, they are really some of my favorite episodes, bar none. Well, let's let's start with uh, the diuretics episode. Paul, I'll let you have first crack if you had anything to talk about, or or you could pick whatever episode of his you wanted to highlight. No, it's and again, yeah. So I, I love the diuretics, but I was not part of that one. So this this may be one of the first curbside episodes I actually listened to, um, <laughs> and one of the only ones. So I, what do you think of the music? <laughs> it's all right. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it was, I mean, first of all, it was adorable. Like you guys all get to know each other. It was just, it was fun to listen to. Um, Joel raised the point about chlorothaladone just being such a markedly better drug than HCTZ, which, which we knew I, I've known. And it's, he almost sort of made me feel guilty because sometimes I just let HCTZ slide by or I'll let a resident just start with it. And I just think, you know, how many hills am I going to let myself die on? Like I just, I have to <laughs> something go. I'm realizing more and more that's not the one to let go because HCTZ is just such a terrible drug and chlorothaladone is so markedly superior in almost every regard. So that was a point that was brought up in the diuretic episode. Another point, or maybe not even a point, a moment that I liked a lot um, is the the infamous pickle juice. I wasn't sure if you're going to bring that up or not. Yeah, no. But you were talking about how all your patients on diuretics or ACEs or ARBs tend to have these leg cramps and you just felt kind of like you were unable to help them and he suggested just a teaspoon of pickle juice and it wasn't even the salt load. It was actually maybe the sour taste triggered something centrally. And he, he went on to emphasize that you really had to sell it with confidence, a little bit of, of drama, um, at which point you guys realized that he was doing the exact same thing to you that he would do to his patients, which was just spectacular <laughs> to listen to. So you guys were so wildly enthusiastic about pickle juice by the time that he was done. I realized he was an amazing doctor. So those were the, some of the things I liked from that very first episode. For me, the one of the points there, he was talking about diuretic resistance, which is a concept I I guess I had encountered, but I had never really labeled it as such, and I didn't really know how to handle it. But he, he made it real simple. There's two types of diuretic resistance. You give the diuretic, nothing happens. So the dose, either the dose was not high enough or the route was the wrong route. Like maybe they have a lot of gut edema, they're not absorbing it, so you give IV, or you just didn't hit their threshold. So that, and he said, don't, you know, don't wait six hours you know, if, if they if they don't pee within the first hour, all the oral medications, I looked this up uh, after the fact, they all onset within an hour if you look up the drug monograph on like Lexicomp. So if you give an oral medication within an hour, it doesn't work, then you're going to want to go to a higher dose and you're going to want to do that uh, right away, like within within that first hour or two that you after you gave the dose. You don't, don't worry about stacking. The other thing is, the other type of diuretic resistance is the dose works, but then it wears off and your 24-hour urine output is still not at the level you want it to. And in that case, you just have to in- give the same dose, but you just have to give increase the frequency maybe to three times a day instead of twice a day or, or once a day, whatever you were, you were doing. And th- those simple points are just really helpful, uh, especially when, when I'm teaching on rounds, kind of we get there in the morning, the resident's like, oh, patient didn't really diurese yesterday, and we try to figure out why it was. And... Uh, I think that's just a key concept. I think one of my favorite takeaways um, was um, during the resistant hypertension talk, and uh, he was 
you know, one of my things was like, do I have to get people off aces or arbs or diuretics when I do that Eldo Renin ratio? And he was just like, nah, that's fine. I was like, all right, if the salt whisperer says it, I'm cool with that. So that was very helpful for me in my own practice. Yeah, Chris, I, I, I agree that that was definitely practice changing because I wasn't even testing people because I thought, uh, I don't want to have to stop their meds and stuff. So I was referring out, but I think the answer is try it yourself, see what numbers you get. If the aldosterone is greater than 15 and the renin is suppressed, then, you know, that person seems to have hyperaldosteronism and you can, you can refer them to endocrinology to do the complete the rest of the workup, but you can start those people on spironolactone. And I generally, what I would do is 12.5 milligrams and then bring them back in one week to one month, depending on whether or not they have CKD to, to check their labs again. And, uh, and you can titrate up every month by 12 and a half milligrams or so. And eventually you'll get, you'll get them under control. I think that's a great point. I mean, I think in general, I, people don't use spironolactone nearly enough or plerinone. I mean, I, I've seen so many residents come to me like, oh, they're on a beta blocker and ARB slash H inhibitor. And, oh, you know, we, we you know, we start everything. I was like, well, what about spironolactone? They're like, oh, Oh yeah, I guess that does exist. And I think it's like the forgotten medication. So I completely agree with you on that too. Another random point from that episode, and also we came back to this on our heart failure episode, was the initial dose of diuretics. And so there's house of God dosing, which is the big, often is a scary number. So it's BUN plus age. And then there's Joltoff recommended dosing, which is creatinine times 20. That's a good starting dose of, of Lasix. And then there's uh, Eric Adler, who was our CHF specialist from uh, UCSD. And his dosing was BUN times 2. So basically, like if you're, if you're starting someone on oral diuretic, you can, you can guesstimate what they would need by those formulas. And then if someone's volume overloaded, they're coming into the hospital, you don't know what dose to use. I think you can, you can use an IV. I would personally do IV version. So, and this, we're talking about, uh, furosemide or Lasix dosing, uh, with those formulas, not, you know, not Bumex. Don't give somebody, (laughs) (laughs) don't give somebody, uh, a hundred milligrams of Bumex. (laughs) You'll kill them. (laughs) Right, right. Wasn't there some sort of myth busting that uh, the steward had a question about, like, you can't overdose someone on a diuretic or something like that when you're yeah, trying right. to diurese them? Yeah, please. Also, that is also not true. You can <laughs> overdose somebody on a diuretic. <laughs> the second time we talked to uh, Joel Topf, he was like, he said that he, I think he said he almost had a stroke while driving when he heard Stewart say that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, was it shortly after that episode we started putting the legal warning at the beginning of this podcast <laughs> about how we're not going to be responsible for that any is deaths based on our advice? Yes, yeah. that is correct. That's correct. <laughs> it's very fast, though. It's it's difficult to hear. No, no, it's fine, Chris. It's fine. We checked <laughs> with legal. legal. We checked with legal. <laughs> and uh, the hyponatremia episode, Paul, anything from that one that you wanted to point out? You know, that one, it's tough for me. It's almost like the asthma episode where I think it was just the whole thing from start. And I know this is a hokey response, but I, I genuinely mean it. I think from start to finish, it was just a nice review of the fundamentals of, of hyponatremia. Like, I think just from the initial workup and the possible causes and actually volume correction and even sort of the advanced stuff like the use of aptans. And like, I just I thought the whole thing was actually a, a great. It's, I'm not surprised it's one of our most popular because I yeah. think it's one of the most commonly encountered issues. And I think this was a really great review of the basics um, by right. someone who can just speak about it with tremendous clarity. And and some of the basic stuff was like, 
Yes. If somebody is uh, volume, when you're trying to get volume status, people are not very good at it. He talked about that article with like experienced nephrologists. If someone was close to euvolemic, like either slightly hypo or slightly hypervolemic, people just are not good at telling that. Uh, our, Our physical exam is just not great at telling that. So if someone's grossly hypovolemic or grossly volume overloaded, you can probably tell that. But if they're euvolemic or near euvolemic, it's really hard to tell. So you, you want to look at other things like the urine-specific gravity or the urine sodium to kind of give you clues, laboratory clues, whether or not this person's dry or not. So that was really, I thought, a great point. I didn't I didn't realize that SIADH could be transient. Uh, I'd seen that a lot. I just, no one had right. ever pointed it out to me. Uh, I had patients, I'm like, I don't get it. I thought they had SIADH, but then they went off their salt tabs and they were fine, but then they get sick and all of a sudden they need salt tabs. What the heck is going on? And so that to me, you know, that was a very helpful as well. Chris, what about you? Um, Actually, you guys addressed one of my questions back when I wasn't really associated with the podcast yet was um, the DDAVP clamp was one of my questions from Facebook. Right, right. um, Yeah, and it was... uh, I mean, it was one thing that I sort of read about a little bit on, uh, I think, PalmCrit or one of these other pod, um, web blogs. And um, I was just like, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I was really happy that you guys were able to talk about that. I think it's it's uh, definitely I wouldn't do that without having my nephrologist involved with my patients in the ICU. But um, it definitely makes a lot of sense, like um, from a physiologic sense. Yeah. And in the show notes, uh, I have it written out where... He talked about the idea of a solute load, like most patients eat about 10 milliosms uh, per kilogram of solute per day, and yeah, per kilogram per day. So a 60 60 kilogram person eats about 600 milliosms of solute, and that all has to be excreted, and you know, your urine can only be so concentrated, can so dilute or so concentrated, and we have some formulas in there that sort of show you how a person who's eating only a hundred milliosms in a day, and suddenly they can't drink more than two liters of water because the most dilute you can get your urine is fifty milliosms. So that is, I I thought that was really uh, helpful to me, especially when you're trying to explain to to patients. you know, or to, when you're trying to teach this concept on rounds, to me that that has been very helpful. Showing that okay, someone has SIADH now they have a their urine is fixed. They can't they can't dilute their urine because their 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 urine osmolality is going to be 800 or something. So you know, it's very easy for that person to get into trouble when they're drinking. Um, that was really helpful as well. And the final one with Dr. Toff was on CKD. That was a two-parter, right? Yes. Any any favorites there, Paul? Um, and again, it's as I we've learned this early on. I like stuff that just affirms stuff that I already know. Um, <laughs> but it's and, you know, I'll tell you, the it's always helpful to me to hear an expert tell me when is when I should probably be referring a patient. And it's it was also especially validating that the first thing that he says is you should refer a patient where you're just feel uncomfortable, you're not sure what's going on, which is you always feel a little bit of shame whenever you sort of pass a patient off to a specialist, or at least I do. But in this case, that that felt good. But they also have other reasons to, to refer because it's always kind of a dicey proposition. You see the creatinine kind of creep up. You kind of have a good idea. You sort of know how to manage it. Um, so it's just it was nice to have some concrete guidance as to when to pull the trigger. So from the first half, I, I, I particularly enjoyed that part. And then also the heat map for staging. Um, and then the second part in terms of the specific medications 
I, I just think it's worth saying a bazillion times, even though I think the residents are starting to pick up on this, that metformin is okay. Metformin is okay. Like as long as the GFR is greater than 45, you can start it. As long as it's greater than 30, you can keep it going. And we don't have to be as scared as we used to be because no one's getting crashing into screaming lactic acidosis, no matter what the grizzled ICU doc says. So <laughs> um, that, those, those are the big points that I like from those two episodes. I did want to point out uh, sort of a correction and this was corrected in the show notes already, but we, we, we started to talk about low-protein diets, but then we kind of got derailed onto a different topic. So after the fact, I was reading on UpToDate, trying to just fill in that gap for the audience in the show notes, and uh, and and Joel Toff was like, no, I, actually, I don't agree with what this says on UpToDate, and he sent me an article from the Neff Madness, which is their March Madness <laughs> Neff Journal right. Club. And basically, the low-protein diet thing, it's it's controversial, the MDRD study and this northern Italian, um, this n- northern Italian study, both looking at low protein diets, they they really didn't show that it prevented progression of kidney disease. Only the MDRD study, when they did a post hoc per protocol analysis, then it it seemed like maybe it did lessen the progression of chronic kidney disease. But it's controversial because an intention to treat, which is sort of the stronger, more real world way to look at things, uh, it didn't it didn't show any improvement. So right now, uh, nephrologists, uh, at least Dr. Toff, does not recommend you know putting your patients on a low protein diet, which can be restrictive. It's not great for their quality of life. <clears throat> it's not great for their quality of life if you're telling them they can't eat as much protein as they want to. And in general, most I I don't think most Americans are like overdoing it on the protein uh maybe the red meat but <laughs> really <laughs> no but i think i think they're overdoing it on carbs paul i don't think most people are eating like if you figure if you figure out like one so 0.6 uh to 0.8 kilograms of um sorry 0.6 to 0.8 grams, grams per kilogram, per kilogram yeah. is a sort of a normal protein diet and i think a lot of people that are eating just like high carb garbage diets are not getting enough protein oh gosh i i will have to go back and revisit this i think because I, I think the american diet tends to be super protein heavy and, and by and large we take in way more than what we actually need i think we take in enough to actually support fourth degree burns um we can i think it's time to get a nutritionist on the podcast now <laughs> Yeah, that's a great idea. I I am talking off the cuff and don't know what I'm talking about as far as uh, I just think people eat too much, uh, you know, garbage carbohydrates. But uh, so I'm probably wrong on the protein thing. But zero point six argument, zero point six to zero point eight grams per kilogram. I'm sure on that, that that is sort of like a reasonable recommended range for people to eat uh, at a minimum of protein. Yeah, so that was one of the that was one of the things from that episode that I thought uh, I should just point out to the audience. So. Low protein diet, uh, jury's still out on that one. So I would not be putting all your CKD patients on a low protein diet. Chris, what else uh, do we have on the agenda? That was that was all our top ones. Um, I guess the the big thing is, you know, do you guys have any other episodes that you can reflect on that you remembered fondly or that you enjoyed? Or uh, before we get to some uh, listener questions. Paul, I can I can go first if you need a moment to think here, but I do need many moments to think. So okay. yeah, you go first. I, I think something just interesting, a, a pattern that I kind of noticed this year on a couple episodes we did. Uh, obesity. Our expert on obesity wanted us to kind of foot stomp that obesity is a disease and should be treated as such. It might need lifelong medication to treat obesity. The same thing. Uh, 
when we did our addiction episode just this week, there was actually some controversy. Is addiction a disease or is it a kind of poor life choice or some amalgamation of that? And I think those things are still controversial, but I think the way we treat it still has to be the same. They both need lifelong therapy and it might need a lifelong medication therapy. And then another recent episode that we did, uh, gender identity disorder was the term disorder was actually removed from that. And it's now yeah. is gender dysphoria. And it's, it's really just regarded as distress that's caused by th- the, that person not wanting to conform to the, the gender norm based on whatever they were assigned at birth. So I think that kind of stuff is really interesting. And there's a lot of discussion there. Um, those are just some points that I don't know what I'm saying exactly, but I think, uh, these these are just interesting things to talk about. And I think you as the listeners, we don't necessarily have all the right answers for those. But I think when we do episodes like that, I, I want people to think about, you know, the idea is to stimulate thoughts, like for you to decide on your own, how are you going to handle these things? Are you going to do lifelong treatment? Are you going to blame blame the person for their addiction? Or are you going to say, this is a disease, I'm going to treat it as such with medications and and so on? That was a really nice, thoughtful answer. And I, I have to admit, I've, I've forgotten what the actual question was. The, que- the question was, uh, did you have like a teaching point or a favorite, some sort of favorite teaching point from any episode or just any random thoughts you wanted to leave the audience with here? No, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take the Watto approach and answer the question that wasn't asked. Um, which, <laughs> no, I, 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 I liked I like that you sort of brought up recurring themes because I, I do think about that a lot. And I, I think one of the things that I really enjoyed talking with all of our experts about is it, it always seems to come from a place of advocacy. And so it's, I, I think it's, you know, when, when you talk about patient non-adherence or that kind of thing, like it's always, it always goes back to shared decision-making. It always goes back to sort of uh, meeting the patient where they are. Stuart brings this point up all the time, um, which is one of the reasons why I still find it just possible to love him. Um, <laughs> and then I, also another point that comes up that I just, I think cannot be emphasized enough, like the asthma episode was a good one. Like just, just get a history. Like it's, it's all in the history. So the asthma episode, evaluating volume status, I just feel like a lot of our experts again and again emphasize, you know, it doesn't really matter how well you know the medications, the disease processes, it's until you get the history from the patients and find out the story from them, you can't really treat them appropriately. So I, I think that those are two recurring themes that I've just been delighted to find in a lot of the episodes that have come up. And I, it's nice. As always, I use this this format just to reaffirm stuff I already believe. And it's it served <laughs> that nicely. Okay. Chris, did you have anything? Um, I, I just, you know, whenever I think about the curbsiders in one of my favorite episodes that um, didn't quite make our list was um, some of the GI episodes. And I think one of the, one of the, the I think one of the, uh, I think it was Dr. Cash was one of our IBS guys. I don't remember. Yeah. Which, whichever episode it was, there was, you guys were talking about celiac intolerance. And I remember you guys talking about, you know, is it a real thing? Is it not a real thing? And I think one of the, what came out of the whole discussion was, you know what? Does it really matter if it's a real thing or not? They they feel better for what they're doing, and it's not hurting anyone. So, I mean, you can argue all you want whether it's a real disease or not, but what, what we're doing is patient care, trying to make someone feel better and be healthier. And you know, if them cutting out their celiac, which uh, their their um their gluten, which is pretty hard, if they're doing that and they're feeling better for it just let them do it. And I thought that was sort of one of the, uh, one important point I think I got over some of your episodes. 
Yeah, I, I love that, Chris. I, I can't remember if I said this out loud on the podcast. I probably shouldn't have. But I, I really do think we should all get our personal statements from our, our med- residency applications just tattooed on our foreheads. Just as a <laughs> reminder. So when you when you look in the mirror, then you're reminded, oh, yeah, I, I said I want to do this so I could make people feel better. And it was important to me to help people heal. Like, it's, I think it's easy to kind of get lost and dragged down to the minutia of the day to day. But fundamentally, our job is to make people feel better and to promote health. And if, if we're able to do that and you can remind yourself of that on a daily basis, um, you're just going to be better off and, and find more joy in the job. So I, I love that you brought that point up. All right. Should we go on to listener questions? Okay. So, you know, actually a lot of them are just comments. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so what is, uh, how long does it take to produce an episode? It's variable, <laughs> but I would say at least 10 hours. Uh, and I'm probably being, I'm probably being generous on that, but yes, half a day to t- 12 hours, something like that. But you're including the, the prep work, the advanced reading, the finding the guests, all of that in terms of putting together an episode, right? Yeah. Not just the actual recording and post-production. Yeah. Then, then kind of coordinating all the, all the posting and making sure there's not tons of spelling errors and linking to everything. Yeah. All that stuff takes, yeah. Putting the whole package together takes about 12 hours, I would say. All right. Question number two is, can we have more of the salt whisper on the show? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's up to him. Uh, he is a free man, but uh, we would, I think he's under contract as chief of nephrology, Paul, right? He's at least quarterly. He has to appear on the show. Is that what we agreed on? At least quarterly. And like, I think a Twitter mentioned every few weeks, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so it's, it's all right there in writing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so Dan also said something very similar. He just said, um, have the salt whisperer on as much as possible. Love how he breaks down topics and make things so logical, believe it or not. Help me shine through my nephrology rotation. So that's from Dan. Um, Dr. Jill Powers asks, how do you deal with EMR click fatigue? I I try to use it as little. I, I write terrible notes now. Uh, I'm striving to write the, the, the worst but most efficient notes. So they... Uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Trying to spend less time at the computer, but it's really hard to do. Uh, yeah, I unfortunately don't have a good answer. My notes tend to be as long and drawn out as as I mean, you guys hear me talk. My notes are pretty <laughs> much like this, so they're they're kind of wandering because I I ruined my short term memory in college, so I need something to remind me what happened during the patient visit. So my notes tend to be narrative; they tend to be long. Um, every so often, they make me laugh, so maybe that's how I avoid quick fatigue. Um, there's. We should probably cut this out, but there was one time when I tested a resident note and, you know, you just, you write something down and you just kind of park it so you can come back and revisit it sometimes. And I wrote as part of the plan, discontinue sausage McMuffins and then forgot about that and just <laughs> left it in the note. And that's now a permanent part of the medical record. So every so often I stumble across something that I wrote that makes me smile and maybe that's, that's it. But otherwise I have no good answer, I'm afraid. That needs to stay in. That totally needs to stay in. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Ahmed Nehas uh, which is from Twitter at a N a H a S nine nine says all episodes are great, but I think it's safe to say 2017 was the year of kidney boy and Dr. Centaur. So I think, you know, both, both are very popular episodes. I love them too. Dorm Korokum, uh, from Twitter also said loved episode number 69. Um, uh, the curbsiders are top class in, in emergency medicine and internal medicine chats and inspired guest hosts at, with M, at MCRIT. So much passion, so many pearls, hashtag knowledge food. <laughs> and then um, Tarista Gomez said from Twitter, thank you for your podcast. Great host, guests, knowledge food. Keep them coming. Love the episode on hyponatremia, easy approach, and a lot of clinical pearls. 
And then last is Adam Clements, who also said, anything with your chief of nephrology. Oh, there's one last question. And I don't know if you guys will answer this or not. Um, Star Trek or Star Wars? <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> it's a, it, boy, this is a real battle of who could care less. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably Star Wars, but it's not a, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would second that part of it, Paul. I'm not that big of a, I'm not that big of a fan. I, I'm not I'm not a cosplay guy or anything, if that's what you're getting at. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a specific question. Yeah. Should I wrap it up then? Yeah, let's wrap it up. All right. So it's been a really great year for the Curbsiders. Lots of changes in growth. I'm, I, for one, am very happy to be now part of the Curbsider family and the rest of the new correspondents who every week help Matt Stewart and Paul produce this high-yield podcast. Um, before I let Matt do his outro, I want to give shout-outs to other Curbsiders who have worked behind the scenes. So on the social media team with me is Hannah Abrams, who runs our fabulous Twitter feed and illustrations, Beth um, Gar- Garbatelli, who has uh, basically increased their Instagram footprint. Um, Dr. Kate Grant, who's been talked about multiple times on the podcast with her beautiful paintings. You should make sure you check out the ones of the Salt Whisperer. And we're going to have one out for Dr. Weingart soon in our YouTube offerings. And then Dr. Brian B- Brown, who did the um, illustrations most recently on the uh, asthma episode. And also, we have some, we've had some new guest hosts Dr. Shreya Trevetti, Dr. Molly Hoyblein. Dr. Cyrus Askin, uh, Chris will be appearing on air from time to time. And uh, also to the rest of our correspondents who have been working behind the scenes to produce uh, our amazing show notes and help write questions, and some of whom will be appearing on air in the future here. Elena Gibson, Jordana Kazupski, Nora Toronto, Sarah Roberts, Annie Medina, Neela Bajandas, Leah Witt, Justin Burke, Chris Thrash, and Carolyn Chan. And if I've missed anybody, I'm sorry. You can send me some hate mail, and I will not fault you for it. It's probably my actually, fault. I would encourage hate mail regardless. <laughs> I, if Matt did you, feel free to send them some hate mail. Actually, I want to also say that everyone needs to thank everyone, you know, both uh, Matt's wife and Stuart's wife, who've allowed them to spend so much time on this podcast, making it as great as it is. Because I know between behind every great person, and they Paul's say wife. a great woman. Yeah, yes. you know I'm married, right? <laughs> oh, with a cat? <laughs> no, no. Paul has a wife. Yeah. Oh, Do you man. really? Yes, oh, I didn't yes, know that. Really she dope. actually walked behind the camera a few minutes ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, there <laughs> you go. Such a well-kept secret. Why don't you just take that over again and we could cut. <laughs> all right. We can start. No, again. no. I feel like we should leave this as. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm, I'm fine if you're fine, Paul. Uh, yes. Paul has Paul has two mediocre sons who are imaginary. Three. But he has he has a very real and lovely wife. I just got their Christmas card. Uh, it's the Williams Five. And uh, yeah, three cats and, and, and a lovely wife. And a lovely wife, yeah, who's happy to have me distracted and doing something that's not bothering her. So this is it's less, <laughs> less an act of kindness and more an act of self-preservation. But yeah, yeah. She's, she's wonderful. Does she, Paul, does she watch those movies with you on those marathons or not? Uh, a lot of the time, yeah. Coming up in 2018, uh, just a very quick announcement. We, uh, we will be going to Ace again and doing some uh, great interviews there. Uh, of course. And also this year we'll be attending the ACP, the national meeting down in New Orleans and doing some stuff there, probably some recap episodes and hopefully some live video if uh, Chris and I can figure out how to get that working for us. And also uh, we, I hope to be getting CME and mock credit for, for the show. 
more more on that in the future. Uh, I can't say too much now, but I'm hoping that we will be able to get that for listeners, and uh, we'll see. Also, Chris is going to be leading a charge. We're kind of be be expanding into YouTube, leading a lot more, uh, having a lot more content on there, and also a new Cash Slack Memorial uh, group on Facebook where. Uh, you can request privileges, right? Yep. Stay tuned on how to do that from Chris. And now for the outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, <laughs> bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find I'm show to say no- something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can find show notes along with Lake City articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our weekly newsletter at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food where you can get pdf copies of all our wonderfully done show notes we also now have merchandise available at www.cafepress.com forward slash the curbsiders and you can get stuff there we are not making money off that we will be donating all proceeds to charity but believe it or not people were requesting t-shirts so i wanted to find a way to make that happen without charging people I should probably buy a t-shirt, shouldn't I? You probably should, Paul. Yeah, sorry about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a good picture of me wearing my Stormtrooper helmet. Yes, that is a great <laughs> picture. That is a great picture. All right, and finally, send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And check out our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Christopher Chu. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Good night. And uh, good night to Dr. Stuart Brigham, who is sick yeah. with, with the man flu. Probably, feel better, buddy. Yeah, feel better. Do yourself a good doctor. <laughs> <laughs>